Hello and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show focused on our ocean. Blue Earth is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization focused on developing ocean ambassadors and future leaders. Our host is President Richard Hyman. Today's guest is John Scott, a senior chemist at the University of Illinois. Enjoy the show and remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. So, John, uh, first of all, it's great to see you again. How are you? Oh, I'm holding my own. I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah. It's nice to see you as well. We met last November of 2019 in Cambridge, Mass. at the MIT Water Summit. The summit was titled Drowning in Plastic. And we're here today primarily to talk about plastic, but uh, some of the other associated work you might be doing at the lab. We were, uh, you were on a panel that I moderated, and along with representatives from the EPA and NOAA, we discussed the health and e- ecological impacts of plastic. I thought your presentation was excellent, and I'm very pleased that you agreed to speak with us today. John, you're a senior chemist at the University of Illinois' Illinois Sustainable Technology Center. There, you're in a specific group named the Applied Research on Industrial and Environmental Systems, referred to by the acronym ARIES. You've been with the center since 2001, so congrats on your almost 20 years there. And uh, can you just uh, confirm that I introduced you accurately? That is all correct. Thank you. Okay, awesome. Thanks for the congratulations. Yeah, it's been a great 20 years there. Yeah, I'm sure it's gone quite quickly. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, that's awesome. Uh, Very, very nice. Um, So can you tell us about the center and your group and, and, and then what you are focused on there? Absolutely. Um, so uh, our center is, was based on addressing hazardous waste. Um, that was really the mandate for us in the beginning. And um, this waste has kind of changed over time. Um, but that's kind of been one of the focuses of our center. <laughs> and obviously, a lot of our center is also interested in the interface between industry and environment. And um, we're very interested in, you know, helping, you know, um, businesses within Illinois and even beyond Illinois to find ways for them to reduce their pollution while at the same time become more sustainable and economically um, uh, advantaged. Um, So our group is actually really interested in the water energy food nexus. Um, A lot of our work, we try to you know, center these interactions because um, they're all um, interrelated. So, and personally, my group, my interests are um, in emerging contaminants. Um, these these chemicals that these new chemicals that are finding their way into the environment and having you know have the potential to have an impact. Um, and a lot of these these chemicals are in high use, are very persistent. They stick around a long time. And obviously, plastic is a good fit into this area of emerging contaminants. Now, I do kind of, microplastics, I kind of term as an emerging contaminant, but really plastic pollution has been an issue for decades. Yeah, that's interesting to me that uh, you, you mentioned the uh, the work with the businesses. So they are actually interested, at least some of them, in the work that you're doing and how they can uh, perhaps correct actions to be more beneficial and less destructive to the environment. Absolutely, especially when you can show them that it's it's uh, there's a financial incentive to that because really, if you look at waste, it's really a process inefficiency, and it you know waste would be things that these businesses are buying and then ending up just throwing away. 
So if you can find a way to, for them to, you're reducing their environmental impact, but at the same time, you're making them more lucrative. Yeah. And you, does liability come into play at all as well, where you may be helping them avoid or reduce liability? Absolutely. Yeah. For instance, one time we had a company that um, was making bagels. This is a great example. And um, they were having discharge problems. And, um, you know, they fired, they hired an environmental consultant come in and they wanted, you know, build a wastewater treatment plant. And this would have cost millions of dollars. And we went in and we looked at the process and it just turns out that they just didn't need to let their bagels fall on the floor and sweep them down the drain. So, I mean, you know, that, that's, a, that's an example of, you know, we don't really have a financial incentive to, we don't, we're not trying to make money. We're just, you know, working for the companies to make them more sustainable. So we don't, you know, we don't, we, but I mean, so the point is, you know, that advice is, is valuable, but how much are you willing to pay for it? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's yeah. an example of something that we've done with industry. So in that example, if I heard you correctly, <laughs> Your advice was to stop letting the bagels fall on the floor and go into the waste the material into the yeah, drain. Into the, yeah, down the drain and then get discharged. And yeah. that actually wasn't my project. That was one of the engineers. Yeah, uh, one of our colleagues. So, what would have been uh, prevented in that case? I, I, I assume it wasn't uh, preventing microplastics per se, but it was preventing yeah. some contaminants from getting into. Well, it was, it was the, the biological oxygen, oxygen demand of their wastewater was, was high and um, they were getting violations from the wastewater treatment plant. So they're getting fined. So they had to solve the problem. Okay, that's fascinating. A, yeah, it's just an example of what our technical um, assistant program does. Yeah. Um, I wonder why we're talking about this. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. Whether, whether you might, uh, can you share another example with us? Oh, there's lots of them. I mean, a lot of times we can go in, our groups can go in and look at, map out like how um, uh, a facility uses water. And right now um, we have a really big project with a power plant because power plants have really large water footprints. So we go in and we look, and also there's, there's the potential, there's a lot of heat in a power plant. So we, we have a novel method to treat water using waste heat. So we find, we map out the water and the heat in this power plant, and then we kind of um, find places where we can use the heat to treat the water and then feed it back into the system mm -hmm. instead of directly discharging it. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, so I think what, uh, what you've sort of touched on perhaps is uh, something I wanted to cover. We're, we're going to get to plastics and microplastics, but- sure. Uh, I believe that your current research interests, uh, either yours or your colleagues uh, in the center and in the group, also addresses things like waste biomass and natural products. Oh, that, yes. Definitely. Yeah. So does that, does that overlap with what we just talked about as far as <laughs> the simple example of the bagels? Or, or can, you, can you explain what, what's meant there by utilization of waste biomass and natural products? Sure. It's a little bit lower. So there's a thing called the pollution prevention hierarchy, right? And at the very top, you want source reduction. And that's usually the most efficient and cost-effective approach, but it's also the most difficult. So if you go further down the run of uh, the pollution prevention hierarchy, you think have things like reuse, recycle, and, and then there's energy recovery. 
So for instance, you know, maybe a company produces some type of waste that, you know, we can use some type of technology to generate energy from that waste and maybe potentially heat the facility. Um, one example is, um, although it's really not a waste, but we were looking at the right of ways on highways in the Illinois Department of Transportation has a lot of facilities to heat. So what we were looking at it was, was, was using that biomass that's growing in the highways instead of just mowing it and leaving it there. We were thinking about looking at ways to try to collect it and then bring it back to their facilities and heat it in their facilities. So that would be an example of, you know, a waste biomass that you can recover energy from. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty much covered? Yeah, that's, well, that, yeah, that's a good, good example. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we transition then over to, uh, to the topic of plastic and, um, I'd like to, uh, maybe start with, uh, you, we'll, we'll get into some technical aspects, uh, but for our listeners that may be less familiar with plastic, mm. the composition of plastic and the source of plastic and, and also then microplastics, perhaps you could give us a general description and understanding, and then we can, we can drill down on that as necessary. Absolutely. So, you know, since, since some mass-produced plastics came on the scene around the 1950s, I mean, we have been hungry for this material. Um, our global appetite is just increasing in a rapid rate. In fact, back in 2013, we were making about 320 million metric tons of this stuff every year. And then what I, what I find alarming is that projection is that if we continue down this current path, we'll be actually making about 1.8 billion metric tons of plastic every year in the year 2050. So just the sheer volumes of the stuff um, that we're making is astonishing. Any chemical we, we would be producing at this large quantity, we would be concerned about, and, you know, because it has the potential to get in the environment. So uh, it's been estimated that um, the, the amount of plastic waste produced over this time um, is about 6.3 billion metric tons. And 79% of this material actually ends up in the environment and our landfills. Um, only a small percentage gets um, recycled. I believe it's like 9%. So there's a lot of this stuff just finding its way into the environment. And, um, you know, over time, a lot of these micro, um, now, so there's two main types of, of uh, sources of microplastics. And there's the primary microplastics, which are your microbeads that, you know, were previously used in cosmetics. There's some industrial abrasives, you know, nurdles, which are like the um, base material for larger plastics. But what I believe is the largest source is the secondary source is what we call the secondary source, which is the breakdown of larger plastics over time due to wear, abrasion, ultraviolet light, and even there's some you know, microbial degradation. Um, so these things over time, plastics are just breaking down the smaller and smaller and smaller plastics. Um, so that is kind of the background. So, you know, should we be worried? And um, well, one thing is they're quite ubiquitous in, in, in the environment. We find them everywhere we look. We find them in our waters, we find them in our soils, we find them in our wildlife. They're in our indoor air. Um, we're breathing them right now. Um, so they're even in our consumer products. Um, so we definitely know that they're out there. There's a, they're, um, humans are being exposed to them. 
But really, when it comes to the health effects, we really don't know. We don't know um, how this, what the adverse effects are associated with them. But the other thing about these plastics is they have a tendency to, um, well, first of all, there's a lot of additives in plastics. We add heavy metals to plastics as heat stabilizers. We use them as catalysts in their manufacturing. Um, we use them for coloring agents. And there's a lot of phthalates and other organic chemicals that are added to make like, for example, PVC more flexible. And a lot of these additives are known to be either carcinogenic, um, endocrine disrupting, you know, they mess with our hormones. Um, so there's a lot of known things about these additives. So these are, we, we need to think about these additives as well as the plastic, because if you ingest it, they have the potential to leach into your system or if a fish eats it, they have the potential to, to leach into a fish. And in addition to that, um, plastics will absorb contaminants from the environment. You can think of them as little sponges. Um, we have several projects where we've looked at this, and it, they do quite readily um, uh, absorb environmental pollutants. And the other thing, too, is um, they can be a, um, they can harbor exotic bacteria. Um, we call that biofouling, um, a, a microplastic or a plastic in the environment is a substrate to grow microorganisms. And a lot of the work done by my colleagues at Loyola University of Chicago has shown that these, these microplastics harbor bacteria that's much different than the environment around them. Um, so those are kind of the issues. But like I said, oh, the other thing is just the pure persistence of these materials. Um, for example, you know, a disposable diaper is gonna be around for 400 years. Plastic bottles, I believe, um, are, you know, known to exist for uh, 400, 400 years as well. So because these things stick around so long, just the pure, pure fact that you know, they're persistent is a concern. Yeah, I, I think that's astonishing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure the general public completely understands, the, you know, they might be thinking in terms of years to decompose, uh, maybe worst case decades, but so many of these products are actually centuries. It's hard to fathom, but uh, absolutely. But that's the the, the fact. Um, I'm also um, not certain that everybody realizes that one of the key components of plastic is are fossil fuels. You know, it's petroleum based, and 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 therefore. You know, we need to change our personal habits that can make some sort of an impact. But meanwhile, we've got the gigantic petroleum companies and the lobbying and so forth that uh, is pushing against us, uh, yeah. particularly with renewable energy. They need to find other ways to use that oil. So, uh, okay. So when we look at your, I was interested in the comment you just made about uh uh, I read some of your research where you were finding that uh, there was a difference in the behavior, if you will, that's probably the wrong word, but the characteristics of the microplastics when they were in, I believe it was Lake Muskegon versus in the laboratory. I wonder if you could kind of dive oh. into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there's a, that, that was a good one. That's a good example. So um, one of the class of compounds that we looked at associated with microplastics in the environment were perfluoroalkylated substances, which are also extremely persistent, used in wide, um, used uh, high production, 
Um, and uh, these 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 uh, perfluoroalkylated substances have some very unique properties. They're a lot different than the other contaminants that we looked at in the past. So in the Lake Muskegon study, what we found is that you know, even within three months, our plastics were concentrating them, you know, hundreds of times the background concentrations in the water. But when we take the plastics and we, and we put them in the lab and we expose them to these same chemicals, we, we find that the absorption is not as great. And um, this was just a pilot study. We need to do more investigating. But what we suspect is going on is that the perfluoroalkylated substances are not really, they're not so much absorbing to the they're absorbing to the biofilm and the bacteria surrounding the plastic. So you can see that this, that this is much more complex of an issue, that it's not so much the plastic, that we not only need to think about the plastic, but we have to think about the plastic, the organic matter that's attached to it, the biofilm that's attached to it, the um, chemicals it's absorbing, and even the additives within it. Yeah, and that, as you say, some more study needs to be done, but uh, initial findings, that, that would be quite alarming, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, it would show that, that yeah, that we can be sucking up more environmental pollutants on these things than, than we would anticipate just being the plastic. And the other significance of that is if you want to study how these things, it, the adverse effects of plastics to organisms, my point is, is you can't just look at the plastic alone. A lot of studies will take a plastic and grind it up and feed it to a fish. But you really need to take into consideration the additives, the chemicals it absorbs in the environment, and then the biological materials associated with it. Yeah, and as I understand it from uh, your words at MIT, uh, a lot of your research is studying the size, the shape, and, oh. the, and, and the material. Yes. And, and uh, you talked about... Um, the challenge, you, you, you referenced the uh, 2015 NOAA paper yeah. uh, that you thought was, uh, at that time, last November, the closest thing we have to a standardized process and that you, you're feeling like, and a lot of us uh, on the panel, as well as in the audience, a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about a need for a standardized and robust uh, method for, for measuring and analyzing. Absolutely. Can you, can you comment on that? Yeah, no, I, I think the NOAA method has all the steps necessary to, to achieve it. Um, however, we really need to push things like our detection limits. Um, we need to really be able to measure smaller and smaller microplastics. What we see, um, for instance, the, um, the, the work that I'm just wrapping up is that um, we, we have pushed our detection limit down to 20 by 20 micron. And what we found, you know, the NOAA method, the, detection, the size detection limit is about 300 micron. So when we run down to these smaller size detection limits, we detect more plastic. And that would make sense because if you think about it, all plastic is getting smaller and smaller and smaller over time. So the occurrence of the smaller materials should be greater. And the, and the size is so important because um, a smaller microplastic has, the, has a greater potential to cross a biological membrane and find its way into our organs and our, and our, and our systems. So that, that getting down to a smaller size is very important. Yeah. Um, and, sorry, go ahead. The, the other thing that we, that I think that we really need a revolution in is how we report microplastics. Even. Because if you look at all the data, 
everybody says particles per liter or particles, but that's really not a good way to express these materials because you can imagine uh, in the environment, you have a 100 micron fiber. And by the time you've done all the processing and everything to analyze it, you might break that fiber down into 10, 10 micrometer fibers. So this, 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 one of the things I've been beating my chest about is we really need to get a handle on the mass of these things, not so much just reporting particles per liter. So what my group does is we do very detailed analysis of the dimensions of the microplastics. And then we try to use that to estimate the mass. And that's so important because that's something we can sink our teeth into. The modelers can work with that. The toxicologists can work with that. I mean, that, in my opinion, is, is where we really need to, to develop a better way to report these things. Now, when you say mass, can you explain that? Absolutely. So typically in the, in the world of contaminant reporting, you usually report, you know, I found, you know, 10 micrograms of PCB in one liter of water, or I found, uh, you know, you, you get my drift that you have to report it on a mass basis. That that's the, that's the unit that we do. You know, that's important because like toxicologists will then determine that, you know, a fish exposed to X grams per kilogram of fish per day of exposure, you know, they can establish at what, at what point these things cause adverse effects. They can't do that with a particle per, you know, liter. It's just a, a meaningless unit. If you, if, if you don't mind me saying does that answer your question? Sure, sure. Yeah, and and at this point in time, would you have a favorite approach, a recommended approach? <laughs> well, right now, yeah, our, our approach right now, like I said, is to do the best analysis of, of the area of these guys. We look at the length, we look at the width, and then we can kind of use that and make some assumptions of the density of the material and we can get a handle on mass. So it, it, it is, I agree, it's an estimate, but we believe that the numbers we get are a conservative estimate and actually represent a lower bounds for the amount of plastic in your water sample and so on. Right. Okay. Fortunately, go on. Uh, I was just going to say, at, uh, and I think at MIT you referred to the fact, at least at that time, eight, eight nine months ago, that... Uh, there's a lot more uh, effort and cost as you look at getting smaller and smaller. Uh, yes. But perhaps uh, perhaps there's there have been some advancements in, in the last eight months. Is, any news to report there? No, I have not seen any. Um, yeah. you know, a lot of people are using a staining method. Um, they, they stain it with a material called Nile Red, which then kind of lights it up, and then you can count these things under a microscope. But that too, it doesn't give you a handle on the mass. Um, and the other problems with associated with Nile Red is that it will, it doesn't react the same to all different polymer types. I mean, you can just imagine all the different materials that are out there. So Nile Red will react with some, but not all. And it'll also react with some forms of organic matter. So it will light up and give you some false positive as well. But I think right now that's the closest thing we have for getting down to smaller sizes. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting to me that, uh, that there's still so much to be learned 
<laughs> there's so much great work that has been done, yet there is still some lack of standardization yeah. and, and, and still a, a lack of understanding about the impact on human beings as well as uh, ecological environments. Yes. Yeah, one of the problems with the plastic issue is it's something we've never encountered before. You know, typically with a lot of other contaminants, we have one class of compounds at the, at the most, you know, and they're, they're not, they're not, um, they're dissolved, you know, they're not as heterogeneously dispersed in the environment. And um, so it, it's definitely new. It's different to us. Yeah. And then you're faced uh, with the added challenge of the smaller and smaller particles yeah. that you're trying to identify and evaluate. It's, it's a yeah. new kind of... Uh, would you would it be fair to say it's a new kind of science? Well, you know, in the emerging contaminant area, yes. But you know what? Really, maybe we need to engage people in the material science and in, in the nanoscience area. You know, maybe that's that's a good point you bring up. That maybe we we can learn a lot from them. Hmm. Now, we talked a little bit about the Lake Muskegon study. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the Lake Michigan study as well that was looking at the water column. Is that correct? Oh, that was in Milwaukee. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because that was another interesting thing that, that we heard and discussed at MIT where there seems to be a fair amount of understanding about what's happening, at least in the sea, but I imagine the same in the Great Lakes, in like the surface water. And in the bottom sediment, but the entire water column seems to still be a mystery, what's going on there. Can you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of times you people go out and they collect a microplastic sample, they'll just do it from the surface. But like you said, you need to really consider the whole water column because these things can, you know, change and stratify within the water column. So, you know, at certain levels, the concentrations will undoubtedly change. That's, changed. That's what we've shown in, in the Lenker paper. Um, and the other thing, too, is, is the biofilms that grow on these microplastics will actually change where they're at in the water column as well. You know, you can have a polyethylene would normally float, but over time, as it gets a biofilm, you know, it may sink. Yeah, and then depending upon where it is in the water column, it could be consumed by different kinds of creatures yeah. and yes. uh, you get into the food chain. Yeah, I, I do believe sediments need to be looked at a little more in detail as well because that's the ultimate fate for a lot of these things. And if you think about it too, our polyvinyl chlorides or polyesters and our Teflons, our fluoropolymers, are really much more dense and the reason why we don't see them in the water columns as much is because likely they're settling out in the sediments. Hmm. But sediments are a lot more challenging to process and analyze at the same time. Now, while we're talking about field research, uh, you also published a paper uh, regarding aquifers in Illinois. Oh, yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. That was a great study. Um, so Karst... Um, groundwater systems are very open and porous systems. Um, they have sinkholes, so water can readily just move from the surface into these um, groundwater systems. And they're kind of, they are important because about 25% of the world's drinking water source comes from karst waters. So because these systems were so open, 
that's why we decided to look for microplastics in them. And sure enough, we found them. Um, the other thing, too, is we would look at other um, personal care products and other uh, emerging contaminants alongside them. And we can see that, you know, if you have high concentrations of, of microplastics, you also have high concentrations of, of other pollutants as well. It's, it's an indicator of anthropogenic impact, if you will. So, yeah, that, that was uh, quite significant since a lot of people are drawing their water from these karst systems. Yeah, and there, there are various ways that those, uh, those systems are being contaminated unbeknownst to us without yeah. the study. Yeah, well, yeah. The interesting thing, too, we're not really sure what the source was. One thing that we suspect it could be leaking septic systems. But the other thing is, is, you know, the field crew told me that they would go out and they would find that people would actually put garbage bags in these sinkholes as a way of waste disposal. And then, you know, just over time, these garbage bags would just disappear and, you know, and end up in the car system, you know, but that's a problem you could solve, you know, just to put up signs, tell people, hey, you know, don't put your garbage down the sinkhole or also stuff will end up in your water. So mm. you know, that's those those are two potential sources that we suspect from the karst um, study. And then aside from those natural karst sources uh, for drinking water, there's uh, sewage and water treatment plants where uh, the water coming out of water treatment plants is not necessarily as pure as one might hope. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the drinking water, um, well, they're bottlenecks, right? They don't believe, you know, they, they receive industrial and residential wastewater on such a large volume. And these facilities are not designed to deal with microplastics. Um, but, you know, I, I hate to point the finger at wastewater treatment plants because I believe that these guys are really the true environmentalists. In fact, next time you see one, you should give them a hug, you know, be six feet away. But um, but you should give them a hug because they're, they're really dealing with all of our waste and, and they have they have so much to deal with in such a little time. And they're already so stretched thin when it comes to resources um, that, you know, we, that is a great place to treat microplastics before they get the, get the environment. But we have to do so in such a way that it doesn't disrupt their operations and cost a lot of, you know, financial resources. Um, so, but the other thing along the, if you don't mind me going off um, about wastewater treatment plants, is not only do we find a lot of microplastics being discharged from their water, we also find a lot of it in their biosolids. This is the sludge, the solid material that's created from the wastewater treatment plant. Now, that's something we're super interested in because, one, we know that they contain a lot of microplastics, but then a lot of these materials are then land applied on, on fields for crops because they're a great source of nutrients. So now we're worried that, you know, these microplastics are just being, you know, sent to the wastewater treatment plant, ending up in the biosolids. Then we take those biosolids and apply them to the field. And do these microplastics run back off in the surface water? Do they get into our groundwater? Or do they even get taken up by plants and have the potential to enter food chains? So that's something we're extremely interested in and we're gearing up to do some work on as well. Yeah, that, that sounds like it's uh, likely. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, helpful words about the water treatment plants. And, and I, I dare say that uh, as, as time goes on, as studies go on and technology advances, Hopefully, there will be further ways to enhance the treatment that's being being done. Now, that kind of uh, makes me think of uh, a couple questions related to whether 
you work with uh, any state, local, federal governments, and and you know either there in Illinois and or you know we had uh, our our friends uh, Karen from the EPA and Demi from uh, NOAA. Do you work with any of the the federal agencies with with any of your uh, science and any sort of collaboration that's going on? Uh, yeah, currently I, I am um, working on several projects with the United States Geological Survey. So USGS, I know, is very active in this area, and you know, we're working with, with the USGS, um, who else in the federal and well, through NOAA, um, definitely through Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. Um, I've had some funded projects through them, and uh, I, I consider them collaborators as well. Um, they're based out of Purdue. And also, we do have some uh, European Union funding. We work with uh, partners in the um, uh, University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. Um, we're part of the, uh, the uh, International Freshwater Microplastics Network. Um, Greg Sambrook Smith is in charge of that. Um, so we were working with them as well. Interesting. What about in Illinois? In Illinois, let's see. Well, I have done some, some talks for the, um, some, some uh, state representatives. Um, I have had a project funded from the state of Illinois to do some microplastics method development. Um, they do occasionally ask me for advice on, on things, so, but that's pretty much the extent of it. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's helpful. I was imagining some of the state or federal Congress people, uh, representatives would uh, be interested in the work you're doing and the findings. Yeah, a lot of that stuff has gone by the wayside, though, given the current situation. Uh, you know, a lot of <laughs> people have become focused on other things. Yeah, I understand. So... Uh, as we draw towards the close of our conversation, uh, I'd like to kind of get back to where we started back uh, last November, the, the risks to human health and ecology. And uh, there's still a lot to be learned. There's still a lot that's unknown. Uh, I know uh, one of your quotes in, in a piece I read was, this is more perhaps on a macro level, but we know for sure that when the stomachs of animals like fish and birds fill with indigestible plastics, they feel less hungry and feed less often, literally starving themselves of nutritional value. And then also in the natural environment, we're seeing creatures uh, being entangled and, and killed, whether they be birds or, or marine mammals. Um, so I just kind of wanted to reiterate that. But then meanwhile, this is something I still can't wrap my head around, Scott, and I'd love to get your, your opinion. Um, humans also consume tens of thousands of microplastic particles each year from eating, drinking, and breathing, approximately the equivalent of a credit card per week. Is that, I mean, is that possible? Is that true? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, people are even starting to look in stool samples. Um, that's something I would be kind of interested in doing as well. Um, although my group wouldn't want to process those samples, <laughs> I'd be interested in the data. But I do think it's very likely. Um, just, it, you know, the fact that, you know, we're surrounded by these things. Just think about all the textiles in your room and you're breathing right now. Look at your chair. Look at your floor. You know, this all over. We're surrounding ourselves with these things. And people are reporting them in, in, in food products and even the packaging, you know, um, you know, for bottled water, you know, every time you open that cap and close it, you're, you're shearing off microplastics and they're getting into your water and you're drinking it. So the question is, is does it stick around? Do you just readily, you know, uh, excrete it? 
Um, you know, the, the, I mean, really, we don't know what, what the adverse effects could be from that, but I definitely say the exposure is there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I don't doubt it. Totally logical. It's just, like I said, it's hard if you actually look at a plastic credit card and, and yeah. think, okay, you're eating that much per week or whatever time frame. it is a little bit hard to wrap your head around, but it, it's scary as hell too. We can't exclude talking for a minute about our current COVID environment and mm-hmm. all of the extra waste that's being generated now, Yes, uh, not only in the hospitals, but by consumers. Uh, would you care to make a few comments about that? Yeah, that is quite alarming that we're increasing, we're drastically increasing now, um, or, and we're pretty soon we're going to see more and more plastic waste. And how do we handle it? And it's definitely going to exasperate the issue. However, at the same time, you know, you need plastics in certain situations I and mean, protect people. We just need to find a way to, to keep them from finding their way into the environment and find better ways to, to recycle them and reuse them or even get energy out of them. So really, yeah, that's, that's about the most I can say about it. Yeah, well, that's well said. We, uh, again, referencing our MIT summit, I think there was general agreement that for medical applications, plastic can be a very good uh, material, but uh, to your point, it needs to be handled and uh, disposed of or recycled in yeah. responsible manners. And, and I was amazed to read that in the case of the hospitals, it goes beyond the gloves and the gowns and the booties and everything. It, it goes to things like stethoscopes and other specialized equipment. Yeah. That I, that hadn't occurred to me that stethoscope on a COVID patient might be disposed of after it touches that human's body. And then, of course, the everyday person wearing masks, and some of us wear gloves, we're using more wipes, hand sanitizers that are in plastic bottles. It's, uh, and, and it can be a great product, as I think we, we agree, but it has to be used responsibly, and it, can, it cannot be used to the growing extreme amount that you talked about up front. The projections are staggering. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that I always tell people is that we should really target single-use plastics because these are materials that have been engineered to last forever, but they are only intended for single use. That is just mind-blowing to me. And that's, you know, I think that is really the top of our priority list, that those are the tar- areas that we should target, single-use plastic. Yeah, well said. I think that ties into... Uh... Uh, kind of my closing question to you, uh, one or two closing questions, John, and and that would be, what do you want people to know? And our our listeners always want to know what they can do. So yeah. certainly targeting single-use plastics would be at the top of your list. Yes. Think of think of more about all the things that you use and where they're going to end up. Maybe think twice before you grab that plastic straw or that plastic fork. You know, is there a better better way to do it, a more, you know, sustainable way to do it? And the other thing, too, a lot of things I tell people, don't be discouraged with the fact that, you know, you hear that only 9% of plastics are recycled. The recycling system is really great infrastructure. Um, people already know about it, know how to do it. Um, where I really think we need a good, great innovation and, and technology development is in the area of recycling. If we can increase that, you know, 9% to a much greater percentage, then we have, to, we have less that is ending up in landfills or in the natural environment. So don't be discouraged by the recycling numbers. And, and I pray that, you know, the smart MIT or University of Illinois engineers and, 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 and students and, and our, you know, people 
our researchers will come up with some great innovations for recycling. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's stay positive and let's do what we can individually and, and support the bigger bigger possibilities that are out there, whether they be in academia or business, oh. supporting the right legislation and government. There's currently some uh, pending legislation to uh, address plastic that uh, we all need to get behind. So, John, this, this is great. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? No. Um, if anybody else has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Drop me an email. I think that's a great uh, conversation, John. I, I really am grateful for you taking time out of your very busy yeah. schedule. And uh, congratulations on all your, uh, your your success and, and keep at it. We, we need you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. You take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blue Earth Podcast. Today's episode was produced by John Sherburn and edited by Emma Friedman. Please let us know how we're doing by rating and reviewing the show and checking out our website, futurefrogman.org, for more info. We release the show every Monday, so until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador.